Now, I recently started reading the Lord of the Rings trilogy again. It's been about 15 years, I think, at least, since I last read it. And maybe you haven't read the books. Maybe the nine hours of the director's cut of the movies is more your style. Perhaps you couldn't care less about either. That's fine. Uh, but there's this particular pattern that occurs in some books and films, including The Lord of the Rings. Near the end of the story, Near the end of the story, you get to the exciting, dramatic climax when Frodo finally gets to Mount Mordor and the Ring of Power is destroyed. Or in Harry Potter, when Voldemort is finally defeated. Uh, or perhaps for an example from reality TV in the Great British Bake Off when the winner is announced and you get cheers and confetti. That moment when the plot is resolved and victory is declared. And then there's the stuff afterwards. That long meandering bit at the end of The Lord of the Rings when the hobbits return to Hobbiton. In Harry Potter, it's the final chapter uh, with the details on what happened to the main characters 10 years later. I hate those endings to books. <laughs> In Bake Off, you get a sentence on the screen underneath the winner telling us about the cookbook they're releasing. This kind of conclusion after the resolution can sometimes feel like a bit of a letdown. After so much action and excitement, everyone just goes home and has a cup of tea. And I think sometimes we can look at Jesus' ascension in a similar way. The letdown after the great resolution. Of course, last weekend at Easter, we remembered Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection when Jesus overcame sin by dying in our place and three days later rose triumphant from the grave. The world shook on its axis. History was upended. This looks like the climax of the story of Jesus Christ. But then there's the next bit. After reuniting with his friends, after a little bit more teaching, Acts chapter 1 tells us that the final time Jesus was with his disciples, he told them that they would be his witnesses in all the earth. And then, next slide please. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, as you can imagine, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said. Why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Well, it's, it's odd, to say the least. After the spectacular events of Jesus' death and resurrection, we get this kind of strange addition. What the church has traditionally called the ascension, when Jesus was taken up from earth into heaven. So what's going on here? Well, we're going to spend a few minutes this morning considering how and why Jesus ascended and what it means for us. Because the ascension isn't some strange tacked-on ending to Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. The ascension is vital to our faith, and it's vital as the climax of Jesus' identity and mission. 
So first of all, let's think about the mechanics of it all. A 30-something-year-old man is standing among his friends when suddenly he starts to levitate into the air and then continues to float upwards into the sky, maybe fast, maybe slow, hopefully at a kind of dignified medium speed. And eventually, he disappears into the clouds. I'm sure the disciples had questions, and for us who have a, a modern scientific viewpoint, we've got questions as well. How did he do it? And what happened when he got into the upper atmosphere, when the oxygen ran out? Surely he would have needed an astronaut suit. And where did he go? The angels tell the disciples that Jesus has gone into heaven. So does that mean that heaven is somewhere in the sky or in outer space? Well, I can't necessarily answer all those questions of physiology and astrophysics, uh, but it might help us to explore exactly what we mean when we say Jesus ascended into heaven. Uh, the Bible often talks about heaven as the place where God is. In ancient Hebrew, which is the language that the Old Testament is written in, the word heaven literally means the sky. So it's sometimes used as a geographical marker, like in creation, when God created birds to fill the sky. But when describing the place where God lives, heaven is used to paint a picture of God as transcendent to show that God is metaphorically above reality. So when Jesus became human, God left the supernatural transcendent reality of heaven and joined our, re our reality. Heaven broke into earth. We see that as well through Jesus healing, through his healing miracles and with his resurrection from the dead. In Christ, heaven breaks into earth. And when Jesus ascended from earth back to heaven in his resurrected human body, the edges of heaven and earth blurred again. But God never intended for heaven and earth to be permanently separated. After all, we pray to God in the Lord's Prayer each week that his will would be done on earth as in heaven. Jesus will return to earth again in the same way that he left, as the angels told us in Acts chapter 1. And when he returns, there'll be a new heavens and a new earth where God will dwell among us. A new reality where God's space and our space perfectly coexist. And so when we say Jesus ascended and is now in heaven, we don't mean he's living in the sky or in outer space. We're saying that Jesus lives now in God's transcendent reality until the time when he will return and make heaven and earth one. So that's a bit about the what and the how, uh, but then there's the why. Why did Jesus have to leave earth at all? I'm sure many of us have had the thought in a moment of doubt or when talking to someone who doesn't follow Jesus, It'd just be so much easier if Jesus was here. If I could just pop over to Palestine and talk to him, see him with my own eyes, point out his miracles to my friend or family member, then they'd be convinced. Then I could be certain. So what's the purpose of Jesus ascending? One more thing. 
If he's in heaven with the Father, what, what is he doing there? Hanging out in his hobbit hole with a cup of tea? Avoiding all the messiness and pain of the world? Just leaving us to our own disastrous devices, perhaps? Well, thankfully, no. The fact that Jesus has ascended is actually good news for his people and for the world. So let's turn our attention to what Jesus is doing now, and we'll tackle it from three angles. Uh, firstly, what Jesus is doing in heaven. Secondly, what Jesus is doing now on earth, and what Jesus is doing in history. So firstly, since Jesus' ascension, what is he doing now in heaven? Well, the letter to the Hebrews in the New Testament gives us some more details about this, about what Jesus is doing in heaven. This letter, the Hebrews, is deeply rooted in the Old Testament. And there's a lot said in it about the role of the high priest. Before Jesus came along, God's people could only approach him through the actions of a high priest, an Israelite man who was appointed to represent the people to God and God to the people. Of course, eventually every high priest would die and a new one was appointed. But the author to the Hebrews I contrast with this with Jesus. They say, because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save forever those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest truly meets our need. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Now, the main point of what we are saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by a mere human being. You see, approaching God in the Old Testament was complicated and exacting. There was a temple, sacrifices, priests, rituals, and this whole system reminded the Israelites of God's holiness, his set-apartness, which could make him dangerous to unholy people. If you approached God in the wrong way, there was a real risk you could die. Uh, in my work as a vet, which I do with part of my week, uh, I sometimes look after wildlife. Now, I wonder if you've ever come across an angry brush-tailed possum. I wouldn't wish it on any of you. In my experience, some well-meaning member of the public has found this possum. Obviously, it looks like it's injured. They've managed to catch it and stuff it in a box. And by the time the possum gets to the vet and gets itself all worked up, well, I've, um, I've approached a number of boxes with something heavy on top of it. There are grunts and snorts coming from inside the box. It's jumping slightly with every kick or punch. You have to consider carefully the way to approach this possum. I won't be dramatic, you won't die if you get close in the wrong way, but you could get a nasty bite and maybe need a tetanus injection. In a much, much greater way, getting close to God can be dangerous. And so the temple and the priesthood were set up by God to keep his people safe from him. But now in Jesus, the priesthood is fulfilled. 
at the ascension, Jesus was made high priest forever. Because he is that unique person, God made human. He is uniquely placed to serve in the heavenly sanctuary, the true version of the tabernacle or the temple. As a human, he can represent us and speak on our behalf. And as God, he is pure and sinless. He was able to sacrifice himself as the final perfect sacrifice for our sin. And he continues to offer that blood in the heavenly sanctuary to cleanse us. Now, this is rich, meaty truth, which we're glancing over very quickly. But these details have real-world implications for us. When we approach God in Jesus, we're not risking death. Hebrews chapter 4 lays it out. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathise with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Whatever suffering, weakness or temptation we face, Jesus is with us as our great high priest, giving us mercy and grace to help us. When we suffer for the gospel, when we suffer in the pursuit of justice, when we're exhausted and cry out in desperation to the Lord, we have a high priest who comes to us and who leads us to the throne of grace so that he can comfort us and lift us up. That's what Jesus is doing now in heaven. Which brings us to our second point, what Jesus is doing now on earth. At first glance, like I said before, it seems a bit silly that Jesus would leave the earth so soon after his resurrection. Surely that was the time to stay, to consolidate his victory and help to build the church. But Jesus himself tells us that it's better that he left. At the last meal that Jesus shared with his disciples, the night before he died, Jesus says to them, but now I am going to him who sent me. None of you ask me, where are you going? Rather, you are filled with grief because I have said these things. But very truly, I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Of course, the disciples were grieving. Jesus had just told them that he was leaving them. But even in this moment of loss, Jesus is convinced that it's better for him to leave than to stay, because then the advocate will come. The advocate being the Holy Spirit, who was sent by Jesus from the Father once he ascended into heaven. Now, although Jesus had a big impact on Galilee and the immediate surrounding area during his lifetime, he never traveled all that far from home. Uh, this is an image of the areas where Jesus went during his earthly ministry. So it's around Galilee and Jerusalem. And then zooming out a bit in the next slide to show Israel's location in the Middle East in relation to Africa and Europe. 
And then this next slide shows that region in relation to most of the world. And Israel is that tiny red sliver, uh, which uh, you may not be able to even see on the screen, and it's in the middle of the red square. But that's pretty much as far as Jesus ever got. As long as Jesus was present in his body on earth, he would always be limited by space and time. But once Jesus left, he sent his spirit to his disciples. In the book of Acts, we see that only months after Jesus ascended, the church grew and multiplied rapidly, spreading out from Jerusalem across the Roman Empire. Eventually, the gospel made it to the ends of the earth, to Tokyo, to Alaska, and to Australia. And as the church grows, so does Jesus' impact. And all this could only happen because Jesus physically left. By ascending into heaven, Jesus moved into God's transcendent reality. He is now everywhere, all at once. And he could send his spirit, his own empowering, convicting presence to his disciples. In fact, now that Jesus has ascended, rather than being absent, Jesus is more present. More present because his spirit lives in each of us who trust him. Jesus is with us intimately forever. And the purpose of this permanent indwelling of Christ's spirit is to build and equip the church. I've been thinking about what Jesus is doing on earth as discussions about the voice have picked up in the community and particular, particularly in relation to what the church's role should be. Although Jesus is not physically present to protect the vulnerable and advocate for the helpless, the church is. We are Christ's hands and feet, filled with his spirit, empowered to go out and speak about Jesus, about the justice he values, building his church. I especially want to encourage Tehrana and Larissa and Scar Trade Ministries that as you campaign for The Voice, as others of us in the church advocate for The Voice, Jesus is with us. And that's only because he has ascended. He's at the Father's right hand in heaven able to be in all places and all times at once, and he lives in us by his spirit. So that's what Jesus is doing right now on earth. And finally, as we think about the purpose of Jesus' ascension, we'll see what Jesus is doing in history. Uh, this angle of looking at Jesus' ascension in a way is the most important, and it makes sense of what Jesus is doing in heaven and on earth. As Jesus intercedes for us and advocates for us with the Father in heaven, and as Jesus sends his spirit and dwells in his people on earth, he does these things as the king reigning over all history. From the beginning of Jesus' life on earth, he was recognized as the Lord and King. He was descended from King David. He was royally anointed as God's son at his baptism. And he conquered sin, sickness, and death, bringing in the kingdom of heaven. 
but it's only in Jesus' ascension that he's installed as the king. Uh, in a couple of weeks' time, Charles is going to be installed as the new king of England at his coronation. This is a badge you can get on Etsy. It's like five bucks, so very exciting. Although it sounds like all the festivities uh, will be a little more subdued than they were for Queen Elizabeth's coronation 70 years ago, there will still be a lot of pomp and extravagance surrounding this event. But that's nothing compared to the glory and majesty of Jesus' installation as king. Our Old Testament reading from Daniel gives us a bit of an idea of that spectacular heavenly coronation. In this vision, Daniel sees God's throne flaming with fire. A river of fire flows out from before the throne and there are thousands and tens of thousands attending him. And then one like a son of man, the ascended Jesus comes with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every nation worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Through Jesus' death and resurrection, he is enthroned as king. And through his ascension, Jesus is installed as king, the king over all history, for the good of the church and the salvation of the world. Now, before I finish, I wanted to spend a couple of minutes thinking about the use of king and kingdom language in the Bible. Uh, Uncle Ray brought something to my attention earlier in the week, that for First Nations people in Australia, and I would say in many other parts of the world where Indigenous peoples have experienced colonisation, the language of kingdom and monarchy is oppressive and negative. After all, the British Empire, ruled over by the kings and queens of England, used violence, or often used violence and injustice to extend its rule, particularly perpetrated against First Nations people. And so referring to Jesus as king and his rule as bringing in the kingdom of heaven can feel oppressive. Now, thankfully, the Bible gives us lots of ways to just embrace Jesus' identity and mission. Jesus is our friend, our saviour, brother, our cutter, our judge. Jesus is also described as our king. As someone who is not indigenous, I know I can't fully understand the difficulty of this language, uh, but in humility and a willingness to learn, I want to suggest a refrain of how we found Jesus' kingdom. Because the Lord's kingdom is nothing like the British Empire. Instead of an empire of brutality and destruction, Jesus' kingdom is an of healing and creation, where crowd are brought down and the vulnerable lifted up. And Jesus is a king who knelt and washed his disciples' feet, who, instead of using force to assert his power, submit himself to the force of occupying power. Jesus is a king who gave his authority to die for us, and now as through king history, he invites us to join in a kingdom of passion and perfect justice. Perhaps one of the most powerful images of this is the Apostle John's vision in the book of Revelation. As John peeks into the throne room of heaven, he sees angels and heavy creatures and people falling down in worship before a lamb that looked as if it had been slain. 
And in loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honour and glory and praise. Jesus is the Lamb who was slain and he's also the King, enthroned over all history. There are strengths and weaknesses to the picture of kingship. But in the end, our earthly experience of kingdoms is like a a flickering candle in comparison to the blazing, glorious reality that Jesus brings. So after Jesus died and rose again, he ascended into heaven, as we say in the Creed. But this wasn't Jesus retreating to his hobbit hole for a sit-down and a nice cup of tea. The ascension wasn't just a letdown after the great resolution. As a result of Jesus' ascension, he is working in heaven, on earth, and in history. But Jesus being in heaven isn't the end either. Um, I know at the, end, at the beginning of my sermon, I called the ascension the climax of Jesus' identity and mission. But Jesus' ascension is more like the beginning of the climax. Because Jesus will return in the same way that he left. As Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. This description is mind-blowing. And it really only sketches the barest outline of that day. Our Lord Jesus has ascended. He will return, and we will ascend to be with him in a new heavens and a new earth. So let's stand and sing to our Lord Jesus, the Lamb who was slain, in our next hymn, At the Name of Jesus.